Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Some will call it a second work of grace, you know, second empowering. I, I don't care what you want to call it, baptism of the Holy Spirit. The real issue is, do you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Because you can be saved and have the indwelling of the Spirit, but not the fullness. The fullness of God's Spirit. That's what Jesus referred to in John 7 when he speaks about rivers of living water that will come just gush. He's speaking of that work of the Holy Spirit just like this fountain that just comes bubbling. So it is that empowering work of the Spirit. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the book of Acts. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is essential to the life of every Christian. In today's message, Pastor Gary asks you if you indeed have received this gift. He points out that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is different than being empowered by the Spirit of God. The disciples were already saved when they gathered in the upper room. However, it was not until they received the promised baptism of the Holy Spirit that they were emboldened to fulfill the Great Commission and given the power from on high to accomplish their mission. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary for today's message from the book of Acts, chapter 19. It tells us here in chapter 19, verse 1, that he arrives at Ephesus. And here's a little bit of information about Ephesus, because this is going to be the scene of Paul's ministry for two years. So let's understand a little bit about Ephesus. He's going to spend more time here than any other location throughout his missionary journeys. Ephesus is situated on the shoreline of the Aegean Sea. The population of Ephesus in the first century during the time of Paul here, which is roughly 54 to 58 A.D., a population of Ephesus roughly 300,000 to 500,000 people. It was the third most populated city in the Roman Empire at this particular time. It is uh, today, however, only a small Turkish village named uh, Ayasaluk, which um, is the place where the ancient city of Ephesus once proudly stood. It is situated at this time along major trade routes. And one of the things that is important to understand about Ephesus that plays out at the end of this 19th chapter is that it was well known for its worship of Artemis or Diana as the Romans called her. The Greeks called her Artemis, the Romans called her Diana. 
And so a little bit of information about Dirty Diana because uh, she is, in fact, uh, pretty Dirty Diana. Here, she's a goddess of the moon and the hunt, uh, but also of sex and fertility. There were a thousand prostitutes employed in her temple service at any one time. A lot of times when you read Greek or Roman mythology, it refers to her as the goddess of the moon and the hunt, kind of innocuous. But then there are other places in Greek and Roman history where she is the goddess of sex and fertility. And archaeologists have actually uncovered uh, little statues to Artemis or Diana. And the statues are the, a feature of a woman, uh, a multi-breasted woman on these idols. And so she becomes more known for being the goddess of sex and fertility uh, as the, uh, the Greek and Roman Empire progresses. And obviously, wherever you have a temple and there are a thousand prostitutes employed in the service of the temple at any one time, you have the seedbed of immorality. So you got to picture Ephesus with that influence. Not, not too much different from Corinth. We talked about Corinth last week. Ephesus, you know, it's, it's uh, along the same lines. The temple of Artemis was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, 425 feet in length, 220 feet in width, encompassed by 127 pillars that were each 60 feet in height. British archaeologist John T. Wood discovered the site, uh, the Temple of Artemis, on December the 31st, 1869. For a long time, uh, it had evaded scholars and archaeologists, and um, uh, Mr. Uh, wood, the T stands for turtle, by the way. Uh, he ended up discovering it, 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 just a little extra tidbit of information. It's true that you get for free here at Cornerstone. But, um, but he ended up discovering the Temple of Artemis uh, 20 feet buried under sand. And so it was quite a discovery. And it, again, plays out here in our story in Ephesians, uh, sorry, in Acts chapter 19. Now, when we come here to Acts 19, we're introduced to... Uh, 12, what it tells us ended end up being 12, about a dozen men, that's what verse 7 tells us, we read it a moment ago, who are here in Ephesus. And I want you to notice with me, this is an important text, the first seven verses of Acts chapter 19, because it lays out uh, the understanding of what we need to be aware of concerning the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Paul is here in Ephesus, and he comes upon about a dozen, it says, men, who are Christians. Now, how do we know that they're Christians? Notice again, verse 1, circle in your Bibles, that it says he found some disciples. So that's a word that is used to describe them. And in verse 2, when he asks them the question, he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So when you put verse 1 and 2 together, that they're called disciples and that they believed, the whole idea is that they are Christians. They're born again. But Paul asks them an important question about the Holy Spirit. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, why is that an important question? Because, again, in trying to understand the third person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are all co-equal and co-eternal and have coexisted. Uh, and so when we speak of the Holy Spirit, we're speaking about that third part of the Godhead or the Trinity and some, in their understanding of the Holy Spirit, uh, would say to you that when you receive Christ and when you get saved, when you get born again, uh, you get all there is concerning the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I will agree that Scripture teaches you can't separate the Godhead. So if you do receive Christ, you're going to get God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But what we need to understand is that there is a difference between the indwelling of the Spirit and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I don't say that because it's my idea. I'm saying it because it's what Scripture teaches. Let me give you a couple of examples. When we were going through John's Gospel and now into Acts... You might remember that in John chapter 20, verse 22, Jesus, when he appeared on one occasion after his resurrection, he appeared to his disciples. And in John 20, 22, it says that Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, how many of you believe that if Jesus breathes on you and says, receive the Holy Spirit, you're going to get the Holy Spirit? Amen? So there's no question about that. They receive the Holy Spirit because at that moment in John 20, 22, for all intents and purposes, his disciples became born again. At what point did his own disciples believe that he was Messiah? Well, the argument could be made back in Matthew chapter 16 when Peter was the first one to profess, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, they understood who he was, but at what point did they actually put their faith in him in the finished work of Christ after he had died on the cross? That happened in John 20, 22. Jesus appears to them. They then believe in the resurrected Lord. They then understand and the fullness of the whole message of salvation comes to bear in their hearts and in their minds. And that's when Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them. They become born again. They become Christians and they receive the Holy Spirit. But as I said, when we were in John 20, if that was everything concerning the Holy Spirit, then why would he say, again, in Acts 1, just before Jesus ascends? Remember now, Jesus appeared on earth for 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. So if they received everything there was concerning the Holy Spirit in John chapter 20, why would Jesus then again, in Acts 1 verse 5, before he ascends to heaven, say to them, Wait in Jerusalem for the gift my Father promised. For John baptized you with water. But after he comes one, the Holy Spirit, the Father will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Acts 1, 5. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And Acts 1, 8, in a similar way, speaks about that work of the Holy Spirit. When in Acts 1, verse 8... It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, or King James says, upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the ends of the earth. So if they received everything concerning the Holy Spirit in John 20, 22, why would he tell them in Acts 1, 5 and Acts 1, 8, wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit because in a few days you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He says that because the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, some will call it a second work of grace, you know, second empowering. I don't care what you want to call it, baptism of the Holy Spirit. The real issue is, do you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Because you can be saved and have the indwelling of the Spirit, but not the fullness, the fullness of God's Spirit. That's what Jesus referred to in John 7 when he speaks about rivers of living water that'll come just gushing. He's speaking of that work of the Holy Spirit, just like this fountain that just comes bubbling. So it is that empowering work of the Spirit. It, it, is, it is the empowering work of the Spirit to have greater uh, 
uh, resistance against temptation, to have a greater capacity and a heart for people that you want to witness to. Uh, it, it is the work of the Holy Spirit who continues to just um, energize us and empower us. In fact, the word dunamis in the Greek, which is the word for power in English, is where we get our English word dynamite. So when we speak about the power of the Spirit, the dunamis of the Spirit, we're talking about this overflowing work of God's Spirit. And so when, when we look here in Acts 19, this is more evidence in Scripture that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second work. Because when Paul says to these believers who are disciples, they believed, um, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answer, look again there in verse Two, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. But they're saved. They just don't have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So they're on their way to heaven, okay? But God has given us the fullness of the Spirit as our comforter, as our counselor, the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the ability to have a greater capacity to witness and to resist temptation, all of this. So it is the strength and power of God's Spirit working in us. And so, you know, people can be saved and have the Spirit of God, if you will, just kind of dormant, just indwelling. But if you've ever been in a place where you've wondered, like, is, is there a little bit more to life than just this? Um, then maybe it's the baptism of the Spirit that you're missing. Now, in, I'll come back to this, but I want to point out that in this text here between verses 1 and 7, there are actually three baptisms that are mentioned. So let's clarify all this language about baptism here and break it down a little bit. When he first asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? Their answer, what was their answer? John's baptism. This is John the Baptist they're referring to. Now, John's baptism, the baptism of John, was a pre-salvation baptism by water in anticipation of Messiah. Now, we don't practice this baptism anymore, okay? Because this was before the, the appearance of Christ. So people in Israel who believed in the coming Messiah, but who didn't even necessarily know who he was yet, we're being baptized by John in anticipation of Messiah, looking forward to the hope of Israel, believing in the Redeemer. And they would be washed in water, they'd be baptized in water, and it signified a cleansing of sin, it signified it, and an anticipation of the Messiah. So when Paul says, well, what baptism did you, did you receive? They're like, well, we, we, we received John the Baptist's baptism. And Paul said in verse 4, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. John was always pointing to the one coming after him. In fact, at one point he actually did when Jesus was coming to be baptized. He said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So Paul here is instructing them, okay, that's great. That was a baptism of repentance. But John was pointing towards Messiah. And so verse 5 says, on hearing this... They were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So this is the second baptism. This is the baptism of Jesus. This is post-salvation baptism by water in identification with Messiah. Now this is what we still practice today. This is water baptism. This is when, now that, now that Christ has finished his work on the cross, when a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus and they get saved, all right, after that, the Bible instructs us that we should be baptized to identify our lives with the finished work of Christ. Baptism is not required for salvation. The moment you add anything to the free gift 
of grace through faith in Jesus who died on the cross. You've made it a works-oriented system. Baptism is not required for salvation, but we should be baptized out of obedience. Because Jesus told us, his mandate, the Great Commission, go into all the world, teaching the good news. And, and making disciples of, of all men, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. So we should be baptized in obedience to the Lord because we want to identify our lives with the finished work of Christ. And going under the water identifies us with the death of Christ. Coming up out of the water identifies us with the resurrection of Christ, that we want to live a new life to the glory of God too. So we still practice water baptism. And I'd encourage you, be baptized if you haven't been baptized. Now, you know, I don't know what your tradition is. See, my tradition, growing up in the Methodist church, was that we, we sprinkled, all right? And we sprinkled when you were an infant. And infant baptism is practiced in many churches. Uh, but when I realized growing up that there's really not a scriptural basis for infant baptism, one can make the argument, like in the household of Cornelius in Acts 10, that his whole family was baptized, and maybe that included... You know, little baby. I don't know. All I know is what the Bible teaches concerning water baptism is that anyone at an age of understanding what this is about can make a decision to trust Christ as their Savior and then to be baptized as a demonstration of their relationship with Christ. So as I started to grow up and realize I was sprinkled as a baby, but I never made a, I was never baptized as a profession of my faith in Christ. I wasn't baptized till I was like 21. So, you know, I don't know what your tradition is, or I don't know if you've ever been baptized, but you might want to consider it. We do baptisms here at Cornerstone about every three months or so. We go down to Idle so that might be something for you to consider. But anyway, these are two baptisms happening here in the first seven verses. But then it tells us in verse 6, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them or upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. So that's the third baptism. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, the word baptism is not used concerning the, the Holy Spirit in this verse, but it is the same thing happening in Acts 1, uh, verse 5, when Jesus talks about you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So baptism, the word in the Greek is baptizo. It just means to be overwhelmed. So it is to be overwhelmed either by water in the case of water baptism, or to be overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit in the case of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to notice with me that in this particular example, it does say Paul placed his hands on them. Okay, notice. Paul placed his hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came on them. However, in Acts 10, when Peter was preaching to the household of Cornelius, he did not lay his hands on them, and yet the Holy Spirit came on them. I also want you to notice that it tells us in verse 6 that they, in this, in this case, spoke in tongues and prophesied. But in Acts 8, when the people of Samaria believed and were baptized with the Holy Spirit, there's no reference to them speaking in tongues. And I just simply point this out because we have to be very careful not to make a formula out, out of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, it has to be laying on of hands. No, not every example is laying on of hands. We see the, the Holy Spirit coming on people. Well, it has to be speaking in tongues. Not every example was speaking in tongues, but God can still give that gift to people. Well, it has to be this. It has to be that. No, we just, you know, you might be surprised by the Spirit, you know. So don't try to make a formula out of it. Just be open to the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that's what's happening here. They spoke in tongues. 
Tongues is a language unknown to the person speaking, but it is an otherwise known language somewhere. It is, for some, a kind of a scary gift. If maybe some of your church backgrounds, you're, you're a little reluctant to you know, embrace the whole idea of, of the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy. But God has done a wonderful thing with language. And yet language is, at the same time, a wonderful tool. It is also a very restrictive thing. And if you've ever tried to express yourself and gotten frustrated because you didn't have the right words, you were trying to express yourself and you just couldn't make it all sound intelligible, then you know how language can sometimes be a tricky thing. Um, We all think in our own language, whatever our native tongue is. If I were to ask you, what language will it be in heaven? What's your first thought? Your native tongue. I remember being in Honduras on a mission trip with our church and watching these people yelling at their dog in Spanish. And my first thought was, that dog doesn't know Spanish. (laughs) That was my first thought. So language is a, it's a tricky thing. I had to actually stop and realize that dog understands Spanish. In fact, that dog doesn't understand English. If I were to say something, that dog wouldn't understand a thing. But because language can also be restrictive because We can only communicate in as much as we have words to express ourselves. God, in in giving the gift of tongues, gives the ability for people who might receive that particular gift to be able to bypass the restriction of language and communicate directly to the Lord. Tongues is a gift of prayer and praise to God. Uh, in a language that you yourself don't understand. It's always foreign to the one speaking, but it is also a known language somewhere. Uh, Maybe it's even a heavenly language. Remember in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a a, a clanging cymbal or a noisy gong, just making noise. So it is a particular gift that God can still give. And then the gift of prophecy is the Sometimes we think of it only as the foretelling of God's Word, but uh, it is even much more than that. It is the forthtelling of God's Word. So, you know, here they are uh, praising the Lord in a language that they don't understand. Um, They're just connecting with the heart of God, uh, and they're prophesying, and there were about 12 men in all. So, again, you know, the the book of Acts is... um, It's called the Acts of the Apostles, but it really is the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. And so this whole book is is rich with information concerning about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That was was vital to the early church and and still vital to us today. So let's carry on in the text. Verse 8, it says that Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months. That was always his approach. He'd go to, if there was a Jewish synagogue in town, that's where he'd go first, first to the Jews. So there is one. He goes there, speaks boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. Notice that capital W, the way. That word is used six times in the book of Acts. This is the second time it is used in the book of Acts. And it is a reference to Christianity. It is picking up this name called the way. Uh, And, of course, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So followers of Christ were known as the way, people of the way. So Paul left them. 
He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews, notice this, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. All of them. They had a chance. They heard it. The book of Acts is so full of the Holy Spirit and the joy of the newly formed church. Though Jesus has left the earth for an unknown time, he didn't leave his followers alone. He gave them the same gift offered to us even now, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. When we accept Jesus' sacrifice of love as our only hope for salvation, we automatically receive the Holy Spirit to help us as we grow in faith. Today, you too can have the Holy Spirit. We'd love to talk more with you about this. So please feel free to give us a call at 703-771-1500. If you already know Jesus, we'd still love to hear from you and be able to encourage and pray for you. Our number again is 703-771-1500. Are you in the Leesburg area? If so, come join us for our weekly services at Cornerstone Chapel. We meet each week on Sundays at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Come get to know us better. Meet Pastor Gary, study the Bible, and spend time worshiping God for all he's done. Directions to Cornerstone Chapel can be found on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. With that, our time with you has come to an end for today. Join us next time to learn more about the early church in the book of Acts, right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul, that you've got no place to go, but still you know.